I have seen both as a student and as a faculty member that online learning done right can be an extraordinarily rewarding experience, both for the faculty member and the student. Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. This series is hosted by Dr. Sentel Nathan and Dean Hoke, Managing Partners in EduAlliance. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders and thank you for tuning in. I'm Sentil Nathan in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates and with me is my co-host Dean Hope in Bloomington, Indiana. Dean, how are you today and will you introduce our guests? I'm doing just fine. It is lovely weather that we're having here and it was a great weekend. So, but I'm very excited about our guest that we're about ready to speak to. Um, Central joining us today is Dr. James Henderson, who is the president of the University of Louisiana System, which is a multi-campus system with enrollment of about, Jim, is it about 90,000? 90,000 students. Good heavens. That's right. Well, prior to being appointed president of the system, Dr. Henderson served as president of Northwestern State University He's a native of Shreveport, Louisiana, and received his master's in administration from the University of West Florida, and also his doctorate management degree from the University of Maryland University College. Jim, it's a pleasure, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dean, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm gonna ask a real tough question in the beginning, but let's talk a little bit about the system. I'd like if you could give a background, because this is an international audience, so some may well know the University of Louisiana system in the United States, but maybe less so in other countries. So could you give us a little bit of background on the university and particularly about its students and faculty? Yeah, of course. So the University of Louisiana system comprises nine universities. We have uh, three research universities, including a, a recently designated R1 university, University of Louisiana Lafayette, uh, an urban research university, University of New Orleans, uh, and Louisiana Tech. We have five regional universities, which includes Malma Modern Northwestern State, uh, and of course, one iconic historically black university, Grambling State University. Now, now, each of these universities is is vital to its community. They each have a distinct mission, a history, a, a culture, if you will. And so we, as a system, we leverage that uh, to collectively pursue the common good. Uh, for Louisiana. It's a competitive workforce and enriched communities. Of course, we serve a, a wide array of students that come from all socioeconomic backgrounds, all demographic backgrounds. Uh, we have faculty that come from across the globe uh, that serves these students. Uh, and we're really a, a large part of the economic growth, economic viability of, of the state of Louisiana. It's a, it's a pleasure to serve in my role. I answer to a 16-person board. I have nine university presidents that report to me and of course, they have no egos. They all are exactly the same. It's like a, a, a cookie cutter approach to leadership. But it's been, it's been a great joy. And, uh, you know, when we watched uh, about 18,000 students walk across stages this, this past May, 
uh, graduated from our universities. That's that's really the, the essence of the mission. Well, that's fantastic. So you have them in, in different parts of the states, and it sounds like all kinds of different four-year and comprehensive universities. And they were all established at different times. So this is the system, in a sense, came together after the, the schools came together? I mean, was this a... It, 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 that's, a that's an interesting point that you, that you make, it, because we have an institution, the first institution opened in 1884, a couple more followed 10 years later. Our newest institution is the one in New Orleans that was opened in the, in the 60s, and they were opened as, as in, in different government governance structures. Our current governance structure was put in place in 1974. And so that's an, it's, uh, I, th- I think it's an interesting, interesting concept, if you will, that you have institutions that are more than a century year uh, old and then a system that's not quite 50 years old. And so it can be hard sometimes for people to put their arms around exactly what a, what a system is and how do you, how do you manage the, the individual identities and discrete nature of these institutions, but yet have them work with a systemic mindset. And for the last six years that I've been in this role, that's been our uh, that's been our work, and uh, I'm very pleased at at, at the uh, progress we've made to this concept of, of systems. Very good, Central. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim. As as we spoke to you, and as we um, kind of uh, learned about your background, uh, what really impressed us is about your own personal commitment. Uh, and can you talk to us a little bit about your own commitment to lifelong learning and how that uh, personal experience informs and shapes the way you lead the system? Oh, you know, I, I, lifelong learning has is, is always been important, uh, but it's even more vital today. And, and, and listen, I grew up in a, in a home of educators. My, my mother had gotten, her, had gotten her doctorate at the University of Arkansas. Uh, and then when I was young, she decided to enroll in the University of Oklahoma to get a, uh, a library science degree because she'd always been interested in the library. Uh, and so it impressed upon me. I think my parents were in school the whole time I was a student or as a growing up. And so it impressed on me the importance of lifelong learning. And we'll talk, I hope, maybe later in the program a little bit about some some personal experiences with that. But, but for as a concept, I dare say lifelong learning has, has never been more important than it is today. And, and we talk about the impacts of, of automation and, and machine learning and artificial intelligence as the future of work, but it's very much the present reality. Uh, I, I saw a statistic just a couple of weeks ago. It talked about something that's very important to Louisiana, and that was work in the Gulf of Mexico. That between 2011 and 2019, that work hours in the Gulf of Mexico decreased by 40%. But over that same time period, production output measured in, in barrels of oil increased by 40%. That tells you there's a real impact of, of decreasing manual hours and in, 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 in the demand for higher level thinking, higher level, uh, 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 the ability to use technology, if you will, and, and to, to adapt to this world of automations. One of my, uh, my favorite philosophers slash longshoremen is a guy named Philip Hoffer. And he once said that in in times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. I don't know if we've ever been in an era that, that better defines what he meant when he said that. And so lifelong learning is going to be critical for all of us moving forward. Yeah. yeah. And, and just a quick follow up. Uh, how much of you you think is, is 
uh, one's own motivation and how much of this is is coming from, as, as you say, Industry 4.0, the, the environment, uh, the, the demand from the employers and so on? That's, that's such a great, great question because, you know, there are those of us that, that thrive in learning. You know, we love to be in the classroom and we love to pursue it just for our own interest. And I happen to be one of those. My, I was uh, on the six and a half year plan as an undergraduate. Uh, my, life, my wife was on a three and a half year plan because she knew the importance of getting her degree but by gosh, don't keep me in the classroom. Let me get out into the world and, and, and produce and stuff. What we're seeing now is some market forces that are coming in that's going to make that classroom learning or, or how we define classroom learning, right? Classroom can be in the workplace. It could be an internship, an externship. It could be just an online session, short-term session, if you will. We're going to see that market forces are assembling to, to, to ensure that all of us are pursuing uh, uh, either micro credentials or lifelong learning in, in different different manifestations, and so it's it's a reality for the for the for the rest of us as well. Jim, I understand the percentage of students and citizens in the state of Louisiana that have post secondary degrees, either associate or higher, is around about thirty percent. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. And while that seems low, I also know that's not. There's a lot of places that have not as high a percentage as I think they'd like. And I think that's true worldwide. We've seen it in other countries as well, many of the people that are listening here. Um, I'd like your point of view in terms of the responsibility of the university and higher education in general to increase the number of graduates. How do you go about that? And can you give me a few examples of how you're addressing the issue? Well, it certainly is, a, is the challenge of our time. Now, int interestingly, we rank near the bottom in terms of states in, in educational attainment at the associate degree or higher, uh, but we, we actually are one of the leaders in the nation in terms of post-secondary credentials of value. And part of that's just driven by some, some drivers in the Louisiana economy. I, you can see probably two windows behind me outside of the, the one to the north is the ExxonMobil refinery, and the one to, to my west behind me is the Mississippi River. And those two entities have been fundamental drivers of the Louisiana economy for, for, for generations. Yet the work that occurs on that river and the work that occurs in that refinery has fundamentally changed over, over time. And so it's demanding a more highly skilled workforce. That's one of the reasons why you've seen a tremendous growth in post-secondary credentials, credentials of value that are less than a degree as we try to respond to that. Uh, uh, but we also understand that if we're going to move into other diversify our economy and grow into these places around technology and, and, and information and, and healthcare and other, and other areas, we've got to produce more graduates. And so we've got a state master plan of higher education that, that calls for us to double the number of credentials awarded by the year 2030. And I, and I think that's an important, but that comes with some, some startling realities. If we do everything right, for the generation that's emerging out of high school every year, uh, we'll never reach that number. We'll never catch up. We have so many generations that are in the workforce today that are demanding or that have the need for an increased skill set. So at the University of Louisiana system is a great example. We created the Compete Louisiana program that's focused on the 653,000 Louisianans that have some college yet no degree. And finding ways to knock down the barriers that keep those adults from returning to to the classroom and that's 
goes to to program offerings? What are the methodologies, uh, the, the modalities by which we're offering education? Are the degrees that we're offering, are they relevant to the existing worker, to the incumbent worker? Are we uh, knocking down the, the barriers that are always erected by administrivia? And there's, there's nothing that will get uh, under my skin more quickly than a bureaucratic reason, a bureaucratic obstacle that makes you tell a student you can't come back to school or makes it difficult. So we're trying to knock down all those barriers to ensure that one, we're, we're, we're serving the traditional students at scale, but more importantly, even uh, serving those students that are, that are defied the notion of traditional, that have life ex uh, obligations, that have work obligations, family obligations, and finding ways to bring education to that student where they are. That's going to be essential if we're going to be successful in achieving that, 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 that doubling credential goals by 2030. So, so do you see those, do you see them coming back the traditional way? I mean, for example, I mean, I, I went to the school and I dropped out for almost three years. You know, I'm one of those six and a half, but I kind of went back to classes, you know what I mean? And, and, did, and went back. Is that, is that even the way it works anymore? With you know, so, so I, I do think that there could be some, and based on their circumstances, that a traditional classroom learning environment on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at nine o'clock, or if you're working at five o'clock, that 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 might make sense. But but really, it's 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 that's that's the exception. More and more students we're trying to serve have uh, need access to to asynchronous environments, but yet have a structure around that, then the scaffolding supporting them so they can be successful in that environment. They need um, uh, non-traditional hours. They need shorter terms, if you will, so that they can achieve credential or a step towards a credential in, a, in an amount of time, in a, in a shorter amount of time, so they can see that progress. We know that that helps them uh, socialize more to the educational environment. They start to recognize the successes more early on. So, so I, I don't think that the traditional model is sufficient, even though it still has a certain, certainly has a role for the, even those learners. Understand. Central? Yeah, Jim, uh, you are one of those uh, rare presidents. Actually, I, I don't know anyone else who has had a first-hand experience as a president, uh, both as a faculty member and as a student with online learning, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, and what kind of advantages that you gain to help you develop online learning strategies for the system? so that you know other presidents and others who are listening to this could gain from this uh you, you know so what i have seen both as a student and as a faculty member that online learning done right can be an extraordinarily rewarding experience both for the faculty member and the student uh but starting as a faculty member i don't do it well so i still teach in uh as in the doctoral program at northwestern state uh and it, it took me a while to adjust. And I, had, I have to I have a faculty uh, colleague that I'll reach out to every year when it comes to, to designing my, my course, uh, the skeleton of my course, if, if, if you will. Uh, and, and she's remarkably helpful because she understands exactly what the online learner is going through. Now, I, I know what I'm going through as a student, but I don't know necessarily how to fix it. So I have to reach out for that expertise. Those that really know how to do it well. I'm much better suited uh, in a classroom where I can engage students in, in, in conversation stuff. You can achieve that same thing, but there's some certain strategies, some techniques that the experts can do, can help you develop uh, to, to make you much more effective as, a, as an online uh, uh, 
faculty member. As a student, you know, I, I thrive in an online environment. I, I, I love to read. I can consume, you know, great deals of a great deal of information quickly, uh, and 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 analyze it, di- uh, digest it in, in an effective way. And I, and I thrive in that environment. I also find that that if you uh, the right group of learners with a, with a, a faculty member that knows how to facilitate online learning, you start to develop relationships with your classmates, even those that you've never met in person. And I saw that when I was pursuing my doctorate at University of Maryland, Uh, we had residencies every semester. And the the way that the relationships had grown between residencies strictly in an online environment uh, was remarkable to me. And so what we've done is at the UL system, and we, listen, the pandemic forced our hand on this. When we had to, to the, in two weeks time, we had to totally shift our work and move 90,000 students, most of whom had some in-person component to their learning to a strictly online environment. We had to reach out to that expertise that was our faculty and, and help our faculty members that, that, that were like me, that thrived in that online and in, in the in-person environment, but struggled maybe online to help them be more successful. We created a, a group of subject matter experts across the state that are faculty members that are, that are a repository of information that you can go to and say, you know what, I need help understanding uh, this particular aspect of learning. Or, or I saw students that were excelling in this phase of this class that I'm teaching uh, in person, but now they're struggling with that. And so I have to think that maybe it's something that I'm not doing correctly. They have they have support structure there, and it's and it's uh, uh, you, you know it's 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 a safe zone, if you will. Uh, to go and get that help, that professional development that comes from those around you. Uh, using expertise is something that, that, I've, I've, uh, that I've found that a lot of presidents struggle with. We're universities. There's no shortage of, of expertise, of, of intellectual capital. And reaching out and utilizing that capital to solve problems can be a very effective way of addressing whether it's online learning or, or whether it's any other aspect of what we do. We have the expertise right at our fingertips. And sometimes we're we're, we're too reluctant to utilize that. I've found that faculty members love to be asked uh, uh, to solve a problem uh, because typically it's a problem that they've seen and they're saying, you know what, I've got the answer. If someone would just allow me, empower me to help deliver that answer, then we could make it a more effective uh, enterprise. Uh, so, so, so both from a faculty member's perspective and student's perspective, I see the value of it when it's done correctly. Yeah, yeah. Dean? Jim, you're you're not. You seem to be in, using a baseball vernacular. You seem to be a triple crown hitter. You're not only a president and a professor, and at times an online student, but but you're also a current student. Am I correct about that? Or you've been going to school and you're going to law school? Is am I right about that? I, I am. I'm a I'm a two L, and uh, luckily I'm in a, a little break between uh, between terms. Uh, where everything seems great They're about the, the end of a term, like many students, I'm saying, what was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, there is no shortcut to a law degree. And uh, this, I had a, a, a woman that worked for me who was uh, in legislative affairs, remarkable uh, woman who uh, in her, her pregnancy with her, with her first child, she, she, she passed away unexpectedly, but she had, uh, was a law student and a law professor and was constantly after me to go to law school. And I would tell her, Ashley, I have no time to do that. I have, I, I, there's just no way I can do it. Um, 
uh, I called her mother on the anniversary of her death and her mother said, you know, Jim, Ashley just so much wanted you to go back to law school. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're putting this on me. And I started thinking about it. I talked about it with my wife. She says, you're not happy if you're not in school. So why not pursue something that has some practical application to what you're doing? And I have to tell you, it's been one of the most remarkable, rewarding educational experiences ever. Southern University Law School is here in 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 Louis in Baton Rouge. Uh, uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of the coursework has been uh, on Moodle, and so I've been able to access it from my office or from my home. Uh, there's there's no shortcut on the reading. Uh, you have to be one that embraces reading and want to read. Uh, but it's been the engagement with my classmates, the engagement with my professors has been uh, a real source of energy for me. And listen, I, it's it's been like most aspects of, of, of lifelong learning. I found opportunities to immediately apply what we're learning in the classroom to my to my work today. And so it's it's been a, 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 a joy. It's been like I said, it's been rigorous and it's been some moments of stress, but it's something that that uh, I would recommend to anyone. You have the opportunity and listen, whether it's law school or whether it's a, a, a course in, in Irish literature. Uh, if there's something that you're passionate about that you can you can throw yourself into it's it's one it's therapeutic it's a great escape from the pressures of the day it allows you to step back and say you know what there's a whole more, whole lot more out there than what i might see within my narrow frame my narrow lens of of the workaday life and so uh it's been it's been a joy a challenging joy and i highly recommend it well jim you're, you're almost kind of the perfect example even though you're certainly not dropbox you have multiple degrees and you're doing this thing yet we were talking earlier about people trying to go back and get their degrees and the challenges of this you may be one of the few people i know that may really understand that and the whole concept of i've always heard it's always about money and it's also about time management in terms of people going well i just don't have the time to do it anything you'd like to say about that you know you never have the time to do it uh and two of my uh my colleagues in, in my office here that are part of our, our leadership team, uh, when I arrived in, in this job about six years ago, uh, we had just created the doctoral program in Northwestern State. And I said, listen, uh, Erica and Sandra, you, you two you both have master's degrees. You need to pursue your doctorate. Here's an, here's an opportunity that's available to you. Uh, they just completed. They both graduated this last May. And I asked them, okay, now what are you doing with all your, your free time that's been opened up because you're no longer and it's amazing. This happens all the time. You think, okay, this took a, a such so much of my time. I'm going to be just free to do whatever I want to. It's amazing how work can expand to fill the time that's available to you. There's always time. You always have time. It's about setting priorities. It's about having the discipline to say, okay, this is something that's important to me. I'm going to allocate this amount of time to it. And the same with resources. You know, I, I, uh, for me, my wife and I were avid wine drinkers, and uh, it's amazing that how if you if you cut back on either the quantity or the quality or both, uh, you can suddenly afford to go back to school. And so, uh, you know, there, there's priorities that that, that take place and uh, for all of us. And then, listen, I'm 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 speaking from a place of, of of privilege, right? It's a lot easier for me to make those decisions than others. Certainly, cost is a barrier to so many students that we're trying to serve, and it's something we've got to be smart about is how do we reduce not the cost of higher education because the cost has remained stable. How do we reduce the price, the burden that's been placed in front of students because of, of, of financial barriers and ensure that they have the, uh, the ability, one, to understand their resources, the financial acumen to be able to afford college, and that we've reduced the price, the cost to them 
uh, of coming back to school. I think that's going to be a key component to our our mission to to raise educational attainment rates. Central, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, yeah, uh, Jim, uh, you were hinting at it, and and many many experts predict. Uh, uh, major disruption to the higher education system as we know now uh, because of industry 4.0 or the automation age, uh, reskilling needs and the advent of uh, micro-credentials and the stacking of credentials and so on. So as, as a leader of one of the largest university systems in the country, uh, what is your counsel uh, to, the, to your fellow university presidents around the world? How, how, would, how do they not only survive but thrive in this uh, coming age of disruption? You know, that's really the challenge of our time. And, and, and I think the word disruption is right, but the, the disruption is, is also a major expansion of our mission. You know, how, do we, how do we define our, our, our purpose? And, uh, micro-credentials are, are a great example. How nimble can we be in creating and developing pieces of learning that, that, that meet rapidly changing needs in the workplace or and empower students and workers to, to seize really some rapidly emerging opportunities uh, that, that are afforded to them. Now, now that said, that's only one component of what we do. And I think that, that it's incumbent upon us to redefine our core purpose or to restate our core purpose in a way that's digestible to them. We, we did that at, at UL System over a three-year period. We, we took faculty from all nine institutions to say, okay, what is it that we do? What, what is the result? What does it mean when you get a degree from one of our universities? And, and they developed... Uh, a, a model that I'm very proud of. It's a, it's a core competencies model that talks about every graduate that we produce is going to have a certain set of competencies around the traditional ones, communication, uh, critical and creative problem solving, uh, cultural competence. You know, we, we're, we're, we're working in a global community now. You're, you're going to be engaged as part of a team with people that don't look like you and have a different belief system and a different background. And are we producing culturally competent learners to emerge? And then and some others that really emerged in the pandemic, this, this, this adaptable resilience. Are, are you ready to get back up when forces outside of your control knock you down or erect barriers uh, to, the, to the path that, that you had originally planned? And, and that, that adaptable resilience is going to be key. And, and then the self-reflective awareness. How Are we willing to acknowledge that we don't know the answer and that perhaps we're limited by our own experiences, our own perspective, or our own uh, the level of learning, and take the steps necessary to, to, to address that in a, in a very healthy way. We think that those core competencies, those, those capabilities, if you will, are the foundation for everything else. And then when, when you have access to robust and, and, and uh, relevant micro-credentialing, you've got this strong foundation upon which to build that. And that's what's going to make the learners that are competitive, that are empowered with their own economic self-determination, that are a competitive workforce that give states and countries and, and, and regions uh, the, the, the competitive advantage, if you will. And I'm, I'm just, it's disruptive, but man, is it an exciting disruption that we're, we're faced with. And I, I'm, I'm very bullish on our future. I'd like to thank our special guest, Jim Henderson of the University of Louisiana System um, for being with us today. Um, we very much appreciate it. This concludes the episode for Higher Education Without Borders. Of course, if you'd like to comment on today's show and suggest future guests, please go to www.higheredwithoutborders.com and we have a comment section. 
We want to hear what you think, good, bad, whatever the case. Let us know what you're thinking and make suggestions in terms of people that you may want to hear and also topics. So on behalf of Dr. Central Nathan, Edge Alliance, our production team, myself, and of course, our very special guest, Dr. Henderson, thank you very much. And make sure to subscribe. Jim, thanks. No, Dean, thank you. Sintel, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today. EDU Alliance is an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi since 2014 and Bloomington, Indiana since 2017. Nathan and Hoke, along with their team of experienced education professionals, have assisted over 30 universities in nine countries. If you wish to learn more about Higher Ed Without Borders, please go to our website at www.higheredwithoutborders.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and EduAlliance's services. Thank you.